Well, the uh, mission statement of our church, uh, if you don't know, it is to discover and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. It's a beautiful mission statement that uh, was actually created years before I came here. And uh, it's just a wonderful uh, mission statement because it helps point out what we're about. As as a church, we want to discover and and live the way of Christ in the expansive grace of God. And the implication is that as we discover, read God's Word, study God's Word, and we discover the way of Christ, then we're going to begin to walk in that way. And as we walk in the way of Christ, we're going to experience God's grace, a rich and new. Well, grace is a real important word for us as Presbyterians. Uh, Grace means God's unmerited favor. We believe that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And and, and as Presbyterians, we come out of the Reformation, and the Reformation had a a five-fold cry. It was grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, and glory to God alone. We're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Scripture alone is our authority and faith in life as we seek to bring glory and live to the glory of God alone. In fact, interesting uh, note here, 2017, it's the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, If you'll remember uh, from your old history classes, there was a guy named Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk and theologian, uh, theology professor who was living in Germany, and uh, he was very upset with the way the Roman Catholic Church was was charging people indulgences, trying to charge people money to help build the Peter's Basilica, and, and he couldn't find that in the Bible, and so he, he wrote uh, 95 theses and put them on the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. In fact, interesting uh, note, while I was in Greenville with Murray and several elders from our church, I ran into some folks from uh, College Hill Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, and they've actually organized this uh, Reformation trip and tour, and they've invited us to, to come and join them on it. If you'd like to know more about that, you can talk to me after the service, or we've got a flyer in the back as well in the narthex. But the basic itinerary is that we're going to kind of walk through the journey of the Reformation. We're going to start in Berlin, but then we're going to get to Wittenberg, where he put those 95 theses up, where he made a very clear declaration that, you know, the church needs to be reformed. It needs to be changed. And, and then we're going to go to Worms, where he was tried and told to recant from his teachings about we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. And well, Martin Luther said, no, I'm not going to do that. In fact, he famously said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther said this knowing that other heretics previously had been burned at the stake. But as he read the word of God, specifically the epistle to Romans, he saw that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. Grace, God's unmerited favor. God loves us because he loves us. We we don't earn God's grace. We simply receive it as the free gift that it is. Well, from uh, Worms, we're going to eventually make our way down to Switzerland where there was a Frenchman named John Calvin. And and he helped lead the church in Geneva, Switzerland. He began this practice of preaching through entire uh, books of the Bible because he believed that, well, all Scripture is God-breathed. And, and in order for us to discover the way of Christ, we, we need to read the whole Bible, not just segments of it. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but we've been going through the Gospel of Luke since Advent, just working our way through the Gospel of Luke so that we might better understand who Christ is and, and ultimately who Christ is calling us to be. It's in the Presbyterian Church, as Martin Luther And John Calvin taught, we believe that we're saved by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. Grace, God's unmerited favor, it it changes everything. For we are saved by grace, we are transformed by grace. 
God loves us because he loves us. And we don't fear God's judgment anymore. No, Christ bore the, the judgment, the punishment for our sins when he died on the cross. And now we live in gratitude for God's grace. In fact, we're motivated by gratitude. And all of us who have kids know that, well, goodness, love is a much better motivator than fear. If you ever had a child and, and maybe some siblings have gotten in a fight and you, and you break up that fight and you say, stop fighting, and you, you order them to shake hands and reluctantly they shake hands and they make up, but, but, it, but forgiveness doesn't really take place in their heart until they, well, until they begin to realize just how much God has forgiven them. Yeah, I can motivate my kids out of fear to do what I want, but that's not the long-term best solution to change. Transformation happens when we begin to realize how much we're loved and in gratitude for that love we're transformed. Yes, we believe that we demonstrate our gratitude for God's grace by obeying his word, by walking in the ways of Christ. As Tim Keller says, religion says I obey so that I can be accepted by God. That's what religion says. But the gospel of grace says that I'm accepted by God through Christ, therefore I obey. It's out of gratitude for what God has done for me that I ultimately obey. To obey God well, though, We have to discover the way of Christ because Jesus is the ultimate revelation to us of of who God is and and who God's calling us to be. And these last three months, you know, we've been making our way through the gospel of Luke. And you'll remember during Advent, we went to Luke chapter 1, 31 to 33, where the angel Gabriel comes to this virgin named Mary and he tells her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of, da- of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So when Mary is a virgin, probably around the age of 14, this angel comes to her, tells her that she's going to have a baby, and she gives birth to this baby boy that she names Jesus. And Mary knows it, and Joseph knows that this is a miraculous child. This is not, I mean, we all think our kids are special, right? But this is really a special child. This is a special baby. She's, he's the son of God. But not everyone understands who Jesus is. In fact, most of the people, while Jesus was here on this earth, didn't understand who he really was. And he lived most of his life kind of in obscurity. It's not until he's 30 years old that it really launches his public ministry. And if you'll remember the story, he, he's baptized by his, by his cousin John the Baptist, and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days where he fasts and prays, and Satan tries to tempt him, but because he, he knows the word of God, he's able to rebuke Satan's temptations with the word of God. And then he goes back to to Nazareth, his hometown, to to speak in the synagogue, which was kind of his custom to do. He would normally read uh, one of the scrolls, and they were reading Isaiah at the time, and so they hand him Isaiah, and he he reads Isaiah 61, a powerful passage about how how, how he's come to set the captive free. And and he reads this, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And everyone's amazed, because, well, Jesus is a carpenter's son. He's not a preacher's son. And, And everyone's like, how is it that this guy, isn't he Joseph's son? How is it he's able to speak with such authority? They're amazed by his, by his preaching. They don't get who Jesus really is. And then Jesus starts to preach some things they don't want to hear, and so they, they kick him out, and they like, don't come back, and they're about to throw him off a cliff, but he escapes. He goes to Capernaum. And he gets to Capernaum, and he sees a man who's, who's demon-possessed, and, and with the word of his mouth, he casts out this demon, and everyone stands in amazed, and they say, what kind of word is this? For with authority and a power, he, he commands unclean spirits. Who is this carpenter's son from Nazareth who's able to cast out demons. And not only that, but Jesus is able to heal every disease. He heals Peter's mother-in-law, and and, and whoever comes to him in Capernaum, he's able to to heal them. It's it's truly remarkable. 
Well, some friends hear about Jesus' amazing healing power, and they, they've got this paralyzed pal who, who hasn't been able to walk his whole life, and so they, they drag him to, to Jesus, and they try to get to Jesus, but there's a big crowd at the house where Jesus is teaching, and so they, they come up with the big idea and say, hey, let's, let's make a hole in the roof, and we'll, we'll lower him down, and we'll, we'll get him to, to Jesus, and then Jesus is going to heal him, because that's what Jesus does. He heals everybody. Well, they make the hole, and they lower, Jesus, lower the paralyzed man to Jesus, and Jesus sees him, and he doesn't heal him right away. He says, because of their faith, he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and, and the scribes, they hear this and they go, that's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but, but God alone? And Jesus, because he's Jesus, knows what they're thinking. And so he says to them, Luke 5, to 24, why do you question your hearts, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, you, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the man did. He rose and walked away. And everyone's like, man, this is amazing. Who is this carpenter's son from Nazareth? He's able to give us, he's able to heal a leper with the word from his mouth. He's able to rebuke fevers. He's able to cure every disease. He's able to heal on the Sabbath, offer forgiveness of sins. He preaches with authority. He gives life to dead people. Who is this carpenter's son from Nazareth? Who is Jesus? Sadly, even his closest friends, his 12 disciples, don't really get who Jesus is. You remember the story we talked about it a few weeks ago. They're in a boat, and Jesus says, hey, let's get in the boat and cross to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I've got some ministry to do over there. And they get in the boat, and he's got four professional fishermen, right? Andrew, Peter, James, and John. And, and he's like, you know, he's in good hands, so he takes a nap. Well, the storm comes, and the boat begins to take on water, and, and it's getting really rocky, and they get really panicked and scared. And so they wake up Jesus, like, Jesus, wake up, we're perishing. And Jesus stands up, and he calms the storm. And the disciples look at each other. And this is what we read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, verse 25. It says, who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Who is this man who who heals the sick, calms the storm, feeds over 5,000 people with just five barley loaves and, and two fish? Who is this man named Jesus? To discover definitively who Jesus is, I would encourage you to open your pew Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. Luke, chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. But before I read God's Word, let's call upon His Spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of His Holy Word. Please join me as you pray. God, we thank You so much that You inspired a physician, a doctor named Luke, so many years ago to to get an orderly account, to do the research, to put pen to paper so that we might have an orderly account of the life and the teachings and the ministry of Jesus. God, I pray that as we read your word now that once again you might inspire us, that you might open our eyes and open our hearts, that we, we might be transformed at the reading and preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. 
And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Now notice that that Luke is very careful to tell us exactly why Jesus went to the mountaintop. Both Matthew and Mark tell the same story about the transfiguration, but only Luke tells us that Jesus went to the mountaintop to pray. And as he was praying, he was transformed. As we read through the gospel of Luke, we, we notice that Luke is very careful to point out that throughout Jesus' life and his ministry, he had a regular rhythm of of praying. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, when when Jesus is baptized by by his cousin John the Baptist, we read that, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in a bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was praying as he was baptized. And after being baptized, after praying and being baptized and having the Holy Spirit like a dove come upon him, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and to pray. And after he launches his ministry and speaks in Nazareth, then he goes to Capernaum and he heals every sick person in Capernaum that, that, they, that they bring to him. He, spends the, he goes away to, to be alone, to, to pray. Before Jesus picks his 12 disciples and names them, he spends a whole night in prayer. After feeding 5,000 people with just five barley loaves and two fish, Jesus goes away to pray. Jesus had a regular rhythm of, of prayer because Jesus knows that it's in prayer that God, we commune with God and we hear from God and God equips us to do the work he's called us to. Yes, Luke wants us to know that Jesus went to the mountaintop to pray before he's transformed. After all, isn't that what prayer ultimately does? It transforms us. It changes us from the inside out. As we talk to God and give our burdens and our worries and our concerns to God, God, by His Spirit, comforts us, strengthens us, equips us. I love love the way Richard Foster in his Christian classic Celebration of Discipline describes prayer. He says, to pray is to change Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things he loves, to will the things 
He wills. As we candidly come to God in prayer and we pour our hearts out to God in prayer and we give Him our desires and our wants and our needs, He begins to speak to our hearts. He opens our eyes. And we begin to want what He wants. We begin to walk in step with His will. Yes, Jesus went to the mountaintop to pray. And ultimately in prayer, He was transformed. And in this transformation during this time, Moses and Elijah show up. Now, of all the Old Testament characters, why is it Moses and Elijah are the ones to show up at this transfiguration moment? Well, John Calvin, who uh, uh, we talked about just a moment ago, John Calvin uh, makes the, the point that uh, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And if you'll remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that he did not come to this earth to abolish the law and the prophets, but ultimately to fulfill them. And actually, as you look at the story of Moses and Elijah, you'll see that both of these men are Well, they're mountaintop men. Both of these men had been at Mount Horeb at different times, and God had presented himself to them. Moses went to the top of Mount Horeb or Sinai, and and God gave him the Ten Commandments. And Elijah, after defeating the prophets of Baal, goes to Mount Horeb, and and God passes by. It's not the earthquake, but it's this silent whisper that God passes by at Mount Horeb. These are mountaintop men. And so this mountaintop experience, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are all there. And when Peter realizes what's going on and who's present, he's like, man, this is good. We need to stay here. We need to build tents and just live up here because down there is no good. But up here, stuff is happening, right? That's how we feel. We love those mountaintop experiences, those great moments in our lives when everything's going great. I remember my wedding day. It's a mountaintop experience from May 26, 2001. It's inscribed in my ring in case I forget But it was a great mountaintop moment. You know, my wife and I made a covenant vow that we would hold for the rest of our lives in front of all of our friends and family. It was a great celebration. And then there was the honeymoon, and that was a mountaintop experience. Literally, we were uh, in the uh, mountains of uh, Arkansas. It was a great experience. And and then after that, we we went on a mission trip. And it was kind of interesting at that time. uh, I was in seminary, and married housing would not open up for us until July. And so we we got married the end of May, and we had the whole month of June before we could move into married housing. So we were kind of homeless, but we had friends who had places, and so we, we went on a honeymoon, we went on a mission trip, which was a mountaintop experience. We did door-to-door evangelism in Cuba, handing out Bibles. It was incredible. And then Sarah's uh, grandparents have, have a lake house in, in Austin, and so we spent a whole week there, which was awesome, on the water. It was just great. Just all these mountaintop experiences. And then we had to load up a U-Haul and drive from Dallas to Princeton, and the mountaintop experience ended. <laughs> Specifically, I remember we were driving through Washington, D.C., and, uh, you know, she's trying to help me navigate, and I don't know D.C. at all. And somehow I got turned on the wrong way on a one-way street in Washington, D.C., downtown D.C., at around 8.30 when everybody's trying to get to work. And the mountaintop experience was over. <laughs> that was not a good day for our marriage. But we overcome. We have overcome. Yes, Jesus goes to the mountaintop to pray so that he might be transformed. Because as the Son of God, he knows that soon he's going to be going to Jerusalem where he has to die. In fact, we read just at the very beginning, about eight days after these saints, what Jesus had said before those, these eight saints, you know, eight days before, after these saints, eight days before, this is what Jesus had told his disciples. He asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Luke 9, verse 18. And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Good answer, Peter. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knows that he will soon have to suffer and die on a cross for the sins of the world. And before he has to endure this suffering, he knows that he needs to go to the mountaintop to pray. If Jesus, as the Son of God, knows that he has to spend time in prayer before he does the ministry he's been called to, how much more do we need to pray? Do you have a regular time of day you like to pray? you have a regular place you like to pray? John Ortberg uh, says this about prayer. He gives us good advice. He says, choose one time each day to have a focused time of prayer. Make it the same time each day. We are busy people, and I know for many it may seem impossible, but if you allow the time to vary, it has a way of evaporating altogether. If I pray at different times of the day, never the same time, I, I may not pray at all. Just as couples often have favorite restaurants or friends have one particular booth at a restaurant where they always gather, having one place where, you, where you've met God in prayer over the years, it becomes a gift to your soul. When do you like to pray? Where do you like to pray? As you read through the Gospel of Luke, you can see that Jesus, well, he liked to pray before any big ministry event and after great ministry events. As we talked about Throughout this series, Jesus needed to spend that time with his heavenly Father to be refreshed so that, he, so that he might be more present with others after being alone with his Father. Do we take the time we need to, to pray to God, to, to listen to God, so that we might be more present with others when we're with them? Notice in our text that after, after Peter has a big idea about building our tabernacle, which sounded good to me, I mean, we want to stay on the mountaintop. We always want to be on the mountaintop, but life isn't lived on the mountaintop. Life is lived in the valley. We're not supposed to stay on the mountaintop. God gives us the mountaintop to to encourage us, to bless us, and ultimately to equip us for time in the valley so we can remember of God's faithfulness on the mountaintop. Yes, after Peter has this big idea, they get engulfed by a cloud, and the voice of God says clearly, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. If we want to know definitively who Jesus is, he is God's son. He is the chosen one. The one that God has chosen to to save us from our sins. The one that God has chosen to send to this earth to live in perfect obedience to our heavenly father and then die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross. And then on the third day, rise again, conquering sin and death on our behalf. Yes, he is the chosen one, the Son of God, fully God and fully man. The ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God's calling us to be. If he's the Son of God, then we need to listen to him. But how do we listen to Jesus today? Peter, James, and John, they they walked with Jesus. He was there all the time with them. How are we to listen to Jesus today? By prayerfully reading this every day. Notice that before I read the scriptures for the sermon or before an elder will read the text, the Old Testament text, we always have a, a prayer of illumination. We ask God to open our eyes. We pray that God might help us see what he wants us to see. 
Because we know from John 15, verse 5, Jesus tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. We need the Holy Spirit to guide us in the reading and understanding of his holy word. (coughs) It's on this mountaintop, God tells Peter, James, and John to listen to his chosen one. The Greek word for listen there is in the imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's a very clear command. We have to listen to God's son. So up to this point, what has Jesus been saying in the Gospel of Luke? Well, if you look at uh, Luke chapter 6, you'll see that he gives the Sermon on the Mount. And if you've never read through the Sermon on the Mount, I would encourage you to read through Luke 6 today. In fact, read it every day this week and see if your mind and your heart doesn't begin to be transformed at the way you view the world. It can also be found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But eight days before this mountaintop experience where Jesus went up to pray, Jesus told them quite clearly that he was going to have to suffer and die and on the third day rise again. Ultimately, Jesus has given them the gospel, the good news, that God loves us so much that despite our sin, despite the way we have rebelled against God, he continues to love us and demonstrate the full extent of his love by sending his one and only son who is without sin, to pay the price for our sins with his death on a cross and then conquer sin and death with his resurrection on the third day. Yes, I believe wholeheartedly that if we will pray as we read God's word, we will hear God clearly tell us, I love you. I love you, Alan. I love you, Lisa. God tells us very clearly that he loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. And nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No greater love is there than this, than a man who's willing to die for his friends. Yes, Jesus, the son of God, needed to spend time with his heavenly father so that he might be prepared for the ministry God had called him to. How much more do we need to spend time alone with our heavenly father? Same time, same place, praying, crying out to God. Because in Jesus, as we read his word, as we listen to Jesus, we will find love, we will find peace, and we will find joy. As we spend time alone with God, then God will allow us to be an instrument of his grace to others. We will be able to demonstrate God's unmerited favor to others as we rest in God's grace today. May each one of us take the time we need to be alone with our Father so that we might experience His grace afresh each day. Please join me as you pray. Gracious and loving God, I thank you so much that as we look at the life of Jesus, as we seek to discover the way of Christ, we see that He was a man of prayer, regularly spending time alone with you in prayer and meditation. So God, may we seek to follow his example. May we spend the time we need each and every day to pray to you, to converse with you, so that we might be transformed from the inside out, so that we might rest in your love and your grace, and we might become an instrument of your love and grace to others. Oh God, by your spirit, guide us. Help us to hear from you as we spend time alone with you each and every day. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen.